This is Pandemic Planet, the podcast where we talk about the urgent health security threats facing the world, the geopolitical and societal challenges they present, and how the United States can best lead health security efforts abroad while protecting Americans at home. Pandemic Planet is the podcast series of the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. While our sister podcast series, Coronavirus Crisis Update, focuses on what's happening in America, here on Pandemic Planet, we'll look at the global and geopolitical effects of health security threats. Welcome to Pandemic Planet. Bliss, Senior Fellow and Director of Immunizations and Health Systems Resilience with the CSIS Health Policy Center. This is our first Pandemic Planet episode of 2022, and I'm so pleased to be joined by Dr. Daniela Ligiero. Daniela is the Executive Director and CEO of Together for Girls, an organization which brings together governments, international organizations, and the private sector to support efforts to raise awareness about and better address the problem of violence towards children and adolescents with a special focus on sexual violence against girls. Now, Daniela brings a background in psychology and work experience in the United States government, UNICEF, and the UN Foundation's programs on women and girls to her efforts to improve the collection of data about violence towards young people in order to advocate for greater attention to the short and long-term health and societal challenges such abuse poses. Over the past two plus years now of the COVID-19 pandemic, Daniela and her colleagues have been tireless in working to ensure continuity of services to prevent violence and treat survivors of violence, even as health resources are diverted to outbreak response. They've also worked to raise awareness of the particular vulnerabilities of children and adolescents to interpersonal violence during extended periods of lockdown, staying at home, and the closure of schools and other public programs. Now, she's joining me here today to talk about what the global situation prior to COVID-19 was, how the pandemic has affected children and adolescents' vulnerabilities to and experience of violence, and how COVID disruptions have affected the collection of data about violence towards young people. And we'll talk, too, about the steps that caregivers, educators, and policymakers can take to improve the outlook for children now, and to ensure that they are better protected in future health crises as well. So, Daniela, welcome to Pandemic Planet. Thank you so much. I am absolutely delighted to be with you here today. First, I wanted to ask you to please tell our listeners a bit about Together for Girls, when it was founded, what inspired the creation of the organization, and why you focus particularly on collecting and analyzing data regarding violence against children, as well as gender-based violence. Yeah, absolutely. So a little bit of history. The partnership is now 12 years old. And so over a decade ago, it was born really from HIV. And it's interesting that this is a, a podcast that focuses on issues like HIV, because what was happening at the time is you might remember, you know, the HIV epidemic was really devastating sub-Saharan Africa. And there was a clear emergence of the fact through HIV data that adolescent girls and young women were sometimes five, ten times more likely to have HIV than their male counterparts. I was working at the U.S. Department of State at PEPFAR at the time as a gender advisor, and our founder, Gary Cohen, who was an executive at BD, Becton Dickinson, and was doing a lot of work in HIV in the region, was really, you know, trying to 
grapple with this difference. And it was clear that there was something that was going on that was beyond consensual sex. And our typical, you know, wear a condom prevention messaging was not really working for adolescent girls and young women. And so a small group of partners led by the U.S. government, UNICEF, you know, CDC, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, UNICEF, Gary, and a few others he brought together said, you know, well, before we can address this, we need to understand the magnitude of the problem. And so the first ever violence against children and youth surveys led by a national government with technical assistance from CDC and UNICEF was born in Swaziland at the time, now Iswatini. And it's a national household survey that asks a lot of questions related to violence, sexual violence, but physical violence, emotional violence, really applying a public health lens to the issue of violence. And at that time, only girls were interviewed, 13 to 24, and the results were shocking. The levels of violence that girls were experiencing, and in particular sexual violence, were off the charts. It was something like one in three girls had experienced some form of sexual violence before the age of 18 at a national level. And so quickly there was this realization that, yeah, you can study violence in this way using a public health approach, but a problem of this magnitude cannot be solved by a single sector actor alone. And the partnership was born out of this need to say, well, let's pull together the UN agencies, the government organizations, civil society, all under the leadership of government to then respond to what's coming out of the data programmatically and with policies. And our model of data and advocacy that leads to action was born. The model continues to be the same. And we really see this need to have data that informs advocacy that creates the political will and that pushes governments and other decision makers to act. And then all that leading to a comprehensive multi-sectoral response. So it's been over a decade and we've been able to do, I think, quite a lot in this model. So now I think you're working in more than 20 countries, right? I mean, you've really expanded from that initial project and you're working with a number of different UN agencies, some focused on health, but others working more with women and children. You know, as we look back over the last, you know, seven to eight years, in what ways do you see that the issues of violence against girls and gender-based violence that, as you said, I mean, really came out of the HIV work, how have these been integrated into some of these larger processes, larger visions like Agenda for Sustainable Development? Do you see, you know, that kind of comprehensive, you know, look across so many different goals, you know, really being able to take on this issue? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting. We live in the intersection of two fields that, believe it or not, are oftentimes <laughs> not as connected as they should be. There's the world that looks at violence against women and girls and gender-based violence, and then the issue of violence against children that includes boys and all kinds of children, I mean, in terms of LGBTQ plus children and youth. And so we are in the middle at the intersection of both of those. And I will say that it's been really exciting. We'll talk about the pandemic, but pre-pandemic to see the progress. I mean, you know, under SDG 5, there's a goal that's specifically around violence against women and girls and includes things like child marriage and FGM, which are important forms of violence, not exclusive, you know, but there's also, you know, broader intimate partner violence, sexual violence. And similarly, SDG 16.2 is entirely focused on violence against children. And of course, there are many ways in which violence was integrated throughout. So we're still a relatively new field compared to other fields. But over the last decade, not only through our work, but the work of WHO, UN Women, many others have been able to build the evidence 
of what's really happening when it comes to violence, you know, the size of the problem, but also a lot more research has come out around how do you respond? You know, what are the kinds of policies and programming that can make a difference? And this narrative that used to be, it's not really happening has changed to, oh, it's really bad, but there's nothing we can do about it to, yeah, it's bad. It's happening everywhere. And there are evidence-based interventions that can make a difference. So that's been great to see. So if you look back to 2019, before the pandemic, you know, the SDGs had been in place for four or so years. What were your your main concerns? Like what issues and regions were you focusing on? And, you know, you said that the data had really changed this narrative to like, well, we don't know what's going on. Now we do know what's going on to we know what we can do to, to make a difference. Where did you see that progress was really being made? And what were you really kind of before the pandemic excited to see take shape over the next few years? I think one of the realizations, you know, as a relatively, again, new field and compared to other fields, the strength of the data, the research, that movement has been really amazing and important. But where I was in 2019 was really feeling the need to really focus more on political will and movement building, because you can have all the data and research in the world, but if there isn't a push you know, that's helping to set agendas and put that political pressure on leaders. You know, leaders and decision makers, as you know well, have a million things they have to focus on and many problems to solve. And so just approaching it from an evidence perspective is necessary, but not sufficient. And so I was really excited to see what was happening with Me Too around the world and this kind of awakening of the fact that, yeah, actually, you know, violence against women and girls is happening everywhere. There's the work piece, but then, you know, in schools, in homes, in in religious organizations, that it truly is a universal problem. You know, talk about the universality of SDGs. You know, some of the issues we can really think, oh, that's only happening in, you know, low and middle income countries or in this region of the world. This is an issue that not a single country in the world has really been able to effectively resolve. And when you look at children and adolescents, even more so, there was a lack of kind of political ambition and will to act. So we were really excited about beginning to build that out to complement the data and to see some of it come to life. But of course, with COVID, a lot of that has been interrupted and and there's some challenges that we're now facing, but also some real opportunities, I think. So I want to ask you a little bit more about the data. You know, there's been a great deal of writing over the past two years about the impact of lockdowns on children, right? Their their mental health, their isolation, the experience of violence in the home, including sexual violence, you know, rape and unplanned pregnancies and losses of years of education with some countries reporting that even when schools are reopening, kids aren't going back to school at all after decades of really concerted work on trying to get children in schools. I understand that the surveys that you've been working with, I guess I would ask you to say a little bit more about how they're carried out, you know, if they're face-to-face or by phone, um, but how you gather that data and how has the pandemic really affected your ability to get the information that you need just in terms of how you collect the data, what has changed during this period? The way I like to think about data on these issues is really that you need to consider it as a mosaic. I mean, there are many kinds of data. So we do national level population-based surveys that really give you this kind of snapshot at a country level in terms of what's happening with these issues. And again, those surveys are led by national governments 
with technical assistance from the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, as well as support from UNICEF and other partners. You know, the methodology really is a long process because you want governments, they need to be leading and you need to build the capacity locally to actually do the data collection because you're trying to build capacity as you go on this issue. So it's not like come in, do a data collection and leave. It is face-to-face. It's national, so it's countrywide. Think of a DHS. You know, this is the level of what we're talking about in terms of a VAX. We are excited, you know, that up to like when the pandemic started, we had been able to collect data for 12% of the world's population under the age of 24 on these issues, making it the single largest data source on violence against children and adolescents and young people globally. But with the pandemic, that was interrupted. We are now working with governments. There are several that are planned and to kind of re-engage, but with precautions, et cetera, but that was interrupted. However, there are many other forms of data that can be collected, as you noted, phone data, data via computers, et cetera. And so there are lots of partner organizations that have been doing a lot of data collection. But for us, it has meant an interruption in the data, but the VAX is just one piece. I mean, there are other data that we use to inform our programming. I will say, just as a side note, one of the really interesting things for me about this work has been that, you know, we started, as I said, in Sub-Saharan Africa and now have data for, you know, Southeast Asia, Central America, Latin America, a lot of other countries in Sub-Saharan Africa, Moldova. And the data we have for Kenya, for example, is now much more comprehensive than the data we have for the U.S., and so we are actually piloting the VAX in Baltimore, the CDC is, with the city of Baltimore to show what we could do in the U.S. And so it's an interesting model of kind of importing from, you know, the developing world to the U.S. So anyway, I just wanted to say that because it's, it's rare to find that. <laughs> it's usually the other way around, you know. No, that's interesting. And, you know, maybe that'll lead to some cross-fertilization of, of ideas and changes. But, you know, so even taking the information that you had before the pandemic, the data that you had collected, and then the anecdotal information that has been, you know, coming forward for the past couple of years, have you found policymakers and leaders to be open to thinking about the issue of violence in the context of the pandemic, or are people just too much focused on outbreak response? No, I think it's been really interesting to see the focus. And I will say, I mentioned other forms of data, not just anecdotal data, but research from other partners. Plan International has done quite a lot of research on this issue, UNICEF, NECMEC. So there are other data sources from partners that have really helped guide our understanding of what's happening right now. And we work closely with them on all of these pieces. I think a couple of things. I think even the Secretary General has mentioned this idea of a shadow pandemic when it comes to girls and women and has done quite a lot to advocate as we are responding to COVID and rightfully so doing certain things to respond to COVID, we need to consider the impact on the issue of violence. So for us who work in this field, it's been really like heartening to hear that kind of high level of, of visibility. The Gender Policy Council in the U.S. that was you know launched almost a year ago with President Biden led by Jen Klein, they've done quite a lot to focus on this issue of gender-based violence, both at home and abroad. And so I think the issue has not disappeared, which has been great. And there's a lot to be done. You know, there's been significant impact, as you mentioned, on mental health in general for children, adolescents, and youth. We also know that the kinds of prevention programming and the kinds of response programming have really 
suffered. You know, a lot of prevention is done in schools, for example, and access to children in terms of social services and other kinds of services for those who have experienced violence is not available. The vulnerabilities have been exacerbated and, you know, the implications for girls, for example, I mean, we've seen spikes in Kenya on, with unintended pregnancy. So I can talk a little bit more about that. I know that wasn't the question, but there's quite a lot to show that it has had an impact and it's good to see that it hasn't fallen off the radar, but I think there's still more work to be done in terms of really understanding what the pandemic has meant. To follow up on that issue of the the specific impacts of the pandemic, I mean, for so much of the past couple of years, it seems like children have been overlooked at every turn, right? I mean, there was first the sense that they are just not as likely to get sick, even if they're infected with COVID. Vaccines were piloted for adults first and only are becoming available for children here and, and elsewhere at a later date. You know, but we know that children have missed a lot of other health services too, right? From routine immunizations... HPV shots for adolescent girls, routine checkups and others. And now, as things are at least starting to open up in in some places, more schools seem to be, you know, reopening and at least figuring out how to be operational during the pandemic. There may be more opportunities to to focus on on children, but at the same time, you know, we've seen that there's been a fair amount of backsliding in terms of enrollment in educational facilities, girls going to work instead of being in school, food insecurity affecting families. So I just wanted to ask you to say a little bit more about the elements of the pandemic experience and obviously worldwide. The conditions are are very different, but you've mentioned Kenya a number of times, but, you know, some of the countries that you all have been working in, the factors that have made children more vulnerable during this period. And as we, you know, think about the role that policymakers can play in beginning to address some of these challenges where it may be most appropriate for them to, to start with their focus. Yeah. And again, I mean, it's hard to capture, like you said, the magnitude of all of this and the differences. But I do think in broad terms, I remember when the pandemic first hit a couple of reading a couple of articles around how the pandemic was the great equalizer because it was kind of hitting everyone the same. And I remember thinking, oh, no, that's not at all right. It's the opposite. It's going to hit the most vulnerable hardest like everything does, you know, like when you look at climate change, I mean, it doesn't hit everyone the same. It affects the most vulnerable, you know? And so when you think about kind of the existing vulnerabilities that children already had, and when you look at vulnerabilities because of gender, age, you know, those two things intersect, as well as access to resources, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I feel like what we've seen is kind of that acceleration of that vulnerability. If you take that lens, then you can quickly see, okay, in countries where it's already hard to get girls into school because of norms and resources, et cetera, you know, when you take girls out of school, then you're going to see it's harder to get them back in to school. You know, the Malala Foundation did a study early on showing, estimating that about 20 million girls will be left out of school as a result of the pandemic once they went back. And so all that progress that had been made, you know, you start to backslide. Similarly, I think when you look at the kinds of interventions, for example, prevention within schools, there was already some happening, but there was more that needed to happen. But that progress that had been made, it's like it goes, right? And so it's not really being taken into account. And the other thing I do want to flag is that in addition to the vulnerabilities that we know of, for children and girls living in poverty, which you mentioned several of them, you know, not being in school, not going back to school, unintended pregnancy, food insecurity, all of that affects violence and creates greater vulnerabilities to violence. 
And the other thing we've seen is also the issue of online child sexual exploitation and abuse, which often gets kind of siloed and forgotten. But what you saw all of a sudden was a number of children and adolescents online like we had never seen before. For those of you that track this, I mean, year after year before the pandemic, the increases in child sexual exploitation and abuse were like 500, 600% a year in terms of increases. And what we saw was a jump unlike anything we've seen before, because all of a sudden you had massive numbers of children spending a lot of time online without supervision, without, you know, with all the vulnerabilities that were happening in the household. So I think that's another issue that we need to make sure to focus on when we're thinking about response. So at the end of the day, it's really about how do you think about these vulnerabilities as you are planning that COVID response and make sure that from the beginning, you're thinking about them and integrating that. So how do you make sure you're not just trying to get all kids back into school, but think about girls? How do you make sure that you're protecting them online? We've seen examples of where that can work well, but it needs to be thought of you know, upfront, I think is the main issue. So have you seen youth led or youth focused organizations, you know, but those led by children, led by adolescents, have you seen them taking up these issues and and really kind of trying to draw attention themselves to the problems and challenges they're facing? Or is this a situation where we would more expect adults to be paying attention to this and speaking for children? What do you see happening? I do think we've seen girls and young people organizing. UNICEF has done quite a lot of work in terms of supporting girls who are leaders and advocacy efforts, which is really exciting. At ATFG, we are really leaning into this idea of adult survivors and the power and possibility of adult survivors of sexual violence in childhood and adolescence playing a role. And, you know, that's been a dream of mine for a long time. I'm not sure you know this, Catherine, but I'm a survivor of child sexual abuse. I've been telling my story publicly for over a decade at a time when very few people were speaking about these issues because, you know, I really felt like the silence around this issue is one of the key barriers to advance the work. I'm excited. I mean, there's some work we're doing, and I'll speak to it briefly now. In the U.S., you know, we were watching the COVID response and realizing that within everything the U.S. government was doing to respond to COVID, this issue of children and adolescents and violence wasn't really being integrated. So we were able to bring together a coalition of 14 organizations leading on this issue domestically to come together and advocate in all the COVID bills and in the COVID response for resources and attention to this issue within COVID response. Like, for example, making sure that those who deal with like shelters and other places where children and women go to get services, that they were getting supplies they need, like masks and basic things like that. And so we started Keep Kids Safe in the U.S. It's been going for 18 months now, and it's a coalition of survivor networks and allied organizations advocating for change. We were able to get quite a lot in the COVID relief bills. And then now, on November 18th of last year, launched what we call a policy blueprint that has, you know, what we envisioned the federal government, through, both through executive action and congressional action, should be doing on this issue in the U.S. And similarly, we are just launching, oh my gosh, something called the Brave Movement. And this is a global kind of sister movement of survivors and allies working to end sexual violence against children and adolescents globally. And it's basically a group of survivor leaders from around the world, 
people like me who are survivors but are already doing the work, making a difference from every region of the world coming together to really do advocacy at a global level around these issues because we think and we know that as adults who are survivors, you know, we have like this duty to kind of make sure other children don't go through what we went through and to advocate jointly around these issues. So I'm really excited about what's coming down the road. We actually put out a G7 statement yesterday that was uh, picked up on CNN and a lot of different places because, you know, there was this big scandal in Germany around the Pope. I don't know if you've been following and child sexual abuse and Germany is hosting the G7. And we were like, well, here's a chance for Germany to step up. So anyway, more to come, but I am excited about the power of survivor voices and kind of connecting to data to create the change we need to see. Previously, you had talked about some of the challenges around social media and online presence and how some of that has been exacerbated. And then you're talking about the the issue of stigma. Children may not feel comfortable talking about things at the moment, but to have adult survivors really share their stories and be able to create a movement for advocacy, you know, seems very important. And, you know, I just wanted to ask if you've seen if there's a positive role that the online connectivity and, you know, having these kinds of networks can play in in helping to spread those messages or get those stories to people in other countries or through, you know, linguistic networks and and the like that may, you know, be helpful to children and others, you know, to see that, well, there are people all over the world who are experiencing this. Absolutely. I think technology, and that's true for so many issues, right, Catherine? I think there's this, like, they're both sides of the coin. There's the issue of kind of, you know, this privacy versus protection debate. Like, how do we make sure people have privacy at the same time? You know, what are the limits to that privacy when you're talking about online child sexual exploitation and abuse, for example? And so we're right in the midst of that. And I think, you know, on the one hand, it could be used to do bad things, technology, but it also it's the great connector. And we saw this during COVID. That's one of the opportunities. All of a sudden we realize there's so much that can be done online and you don't necessarily have to be in person and meeting. And so for us, in terms of the advocacy, that just really accelerated the trajectory we were on in terms of possibility. And I think if you look at other movements, I mean, I'll go back to me too, because I mean, that's kind of the amazing movement that's happened. I mean, believe me, there are pros and cons and flaws, but the power of people coming forward, I think no one can question coming forward, connecting to each other in terms of stories and pushing for change. We're navigating that world around how do we make sure there are protection, but also the power of people speaking out. And I think there is healing that can happen in terms of advocacy as well. People don't often realize that, but you know, we know this from our data over and over again. And I know this from my own experience, you know, when you're able to break that silence, it's not for everyone, but when you are, and if you choose to do so, there is this kind of feeling of, oh, I'm not alone, you know, and, and there's power in that. And I think realizing that, oh, it's, this isn't just about me and my story. This is about systems. And this is about lack of political will and accountability. And how do we kind of influence those changes versus continuing to feel like this is a case by case issue, you know? Just another question for you, as you work with many different sectors, you know, the health sector, working to influence political will and others, does the law enforcement, criminal justice sector have a role to play in any of your work? Or are you, are you really more focused on 
kind of the prevention and healing element than prosecution of crimes. So we have a framework that has emerged over time. You know, in the violence field, we talk a lot about prevention and response. That comes from uh, public health as well, right? But we have modified that, and it's prevention, healing, and justice is our framework. So there is a role for prevention. The health sector has an important role in terms of prevention. The education sector has a role in terms of prevention. So there are a couple of different places, you know. In terms of healing, definitely health sector, huge, important role, especially when it comes to mental health. And it's exciting to see more and more, again, over the last decade, an attention to mental health that wasn't there before. But also, you know, basic things like making sure, you know, if, if you've experienced sexual violence, that you have access to post-exposure prophylaxis so you don't get HIV. I mean, the health system has a critical role to play in the healing piece. And then justice. Absolutely, there needs to be a role for the justice sector. It can look different in different places. We talk a lot about kind of victim and survivor-centered justice systems where you're not being re-traumatized when you, when you go to a justice system and you seek help in that way. And I think with all the stuff that's been happening in the U.S. and around the world, around Black Lives Matter and everything, there's a questioning of how does the justice system as it stands today, respond effectively? And what are the changes we need to see within the justice system? And I think for survivors, it's pretty clear that, you know, there's a long way to go to make sure that these services and, and the system is re responsive. Well, it's been, despite the pandemic lockdowns, or maybe because of them, a very busy period for you, it, it sounds like not only working here in the U.S. to bring awareness of some of the challenges around violence and maintenance of services for survivors of violence, legislative processes, and to maintain those services over the past few years, the launch of some of these new initiatives and, and really getting the, the data collection back on track as, as some of the pandemic elements change over time. You kind of alluded to this at the earlier in our discussion, but you know, really knowing that COVID-19 probably won't be the last pandemic that we'll experience, how do you see the community of people concerned about the issue of violence against girls and children taking steps to plan for continuity of services for uh, prevention, healing, and, and justice, as, as you've laid it out here, and continuity of data collection in future health crises? What steps can be taken now to ensure that, you know, we don't in the next emergency have a situation where everything just grinds to a halt and children become much more vulnerable in their homes and, you know, in their, in their isolation than, than they might have been otherwise? What couple of things can we do now to prepare for that future event? I think clearly this will not be the last pandemic. There are others. That's a big lesson. And really the preparation is key, right? So thinking about it, I think the main thing that I want to leave you with is this idea. And because you focus on health, and I'm sure a lot of your audience does, how we think about health needs to be kind of comprehensive. And so oftentimes we think about physical health, but we don't necessarily think about emotional health, mental health. And I think the pandemic has really brought that home. You know, you can have a child who is COVID free, but who hasn't interacted with peers and has been isolated. And then all of a sudden you see suicides go up and mental health problems and violence. And those are important components of how we think about well-being at large and health at large. And so I think continuing to expand our understanding of well-being and health 
to make sure that we're bringing in from these different disciplines, you know, and thinking about how we respond. So it's not just an epidemiological piece, but, you know, you're bringing in different kinds of perspectives around, okay, what is the most effective way? Because at the end of the day, we all want the same thing. We want children and adolescents and people in general to be healthy, to be thriving, to be engaged in their communities and to have access to opportunity. And so I think that's a lesson that we're continuing to grapple with here in the U.S. and globally, but there's a lot to learn there. Daniela Ligiero, Executive Director and CEO of Together for Girls. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today and share your perspective and vision uh, for the future of the work of addressing some of the challenges regarding violence against children and girls in the world. And good luck with your work in the year ahead as well. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 